Well, good morning, Christ City. Let me invite you to wherever you are, stand and open your Bibles with me to Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Uh, there we hear Jesus say, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Remaining standing, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we examine closely those who serve as our teachers and leaders today, help us to be mindful of our own hearts. Expose in us our own duplicity. Give us strength by your Spirit that we might repent and remove the evil roots our rotten fruit is pointing to. And as an elder entrusted to shepherd these people, would you keep my life and my teaching that I would only ever seek to glorify and make much of you, Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, two roads. Uh, in two weeks, two foundations. Next week, two disciples. This week, two trees. Two trees. This week, Jesus takes an irrefutable observation from the natural world and takes aim at all those who would claim to be his representatives. And there is much for us to understand and apply in our text this morning. And so out of the gate, here's our outline for our time together in Matthew 7, 15 to 20. We begin with point one, asking the question, what is a false prophet? From there, we'll see the roots of a false prophet. And then thirdly and finally, we'll see the fruit of a false prophet. We begin today by hearing Jesus say this in Matthew 7, 15, in the first half of that verse. Beware of false prophets. Uh, immediately, in case we'd forgotten, we're reminded that Jesus inhabited a world and indeed a larger story that most of us are unfamiliar with. Uh, we don't talk about, do we, or even think in the categories of false prophets. In, in fact, I googled false prophets this week, and it turns out that false prophets, the top hit on Google, was the name of a Bob Dylan song that he had recently released. I didn't know he was still making music. False prophets, that idea, is language, and it exists in the lore of an age past. It's archaic, but not so for Jesus. Jesus enters the world as a first-century Jew, amongst a people who had a long and ongoing history with false prophets. And the first step to entering this history is asking, asking the question, what is a false prophet? See, for Israel, prophets like priests uh, could be very simply understood as those who stood between God and his people. Uh, for priests, they were bringing sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And for prophets, they were bringing the word of God to bear on the people's lives. Now, these weren't perfectly distinct roles in Israel's history. Uh, sometimes priests acted prophetically, and sometimes prophets acted priestly. But, but given what we know 
about human nature and the understanding of the tremendous inherent power a role like this comes with, it should not surprise us that early on in Israel's history, they saw a rise of false prophets. Uh, Defined simply, Scott McKnight, a, a Bible teacher, he says this, a false prophet is one who, like priests, stands between God and God's people falsely and deceitfully. A false prophet is one who stands between God's people falsely and deceitfully. It's that simple. Now, while we believe that people still today operate in a small p prophetic gifting, we as a church believe that the age of capital P prophets, those who pronounce the very scriptures, thus saith the Lord kind of things, has passed. The age of the capital P prophets has passed. The temptation then for us today in the 21st century in Vancouver is to write off Matthew 7, 15 to 20 as irrelevant, as not for us today, belonging, like I said, uh, in an archaic time. Now surely, while the nature of the intermediary role has changed, and I do want to highlight that, the nature of the intermediary role has changed. We don't have capital P prophets anymore. Jesus is our capital P high priest. There are still, however, modern equivalents to the ancient prophets. Consider, for example, what I'm doing right now. I'm seeking to, as faithfully as I can, point you to the truth of God's nature, point you to the truth of his revelation. I'm standing between you and God, in a sense, not in any salvific way or a way of salvation, but in a sense, I'm just trying to make much of him and to show you that, and to teach you what his word has to say about your life. See, Jesus is aiming, and he's warning all those pastors, priests, teachers in the church, who would assume this intermediary role between God and his people. And with all that we just said in mind, it's no wonder that James writes these sobering words. He says this in James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. A a false prophet can be simply defined as someone who stands between God and his people falsely or or deceitfully. Well, how do they do that? Largely through the teaching of false doctrine, uh, false things about God, lying about the nature and character of who God is. But, but as is typical to the sermon, Jesus is not content to remain on the surface this morning. Instead, he digs deeper and exposes the root or the roots or the heart that is inside a false prophet. He says in verse 15 this. Let's read the whole verse this time. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The the false prophets that Jesus is concerned about are those who enter the fold of God professing to be Christians, professing to be sheep. But inwardly, Jesus says, they are ravenous wolves. Ravenous wolves. This language of ravenous wolves and the imagery it evokes almost instantaneously in us 
of a frothing animal is, is, I think, completely appropriate. See, as we look at how false teachers and false prophets are spoken of in the rest of the New Testament, one common thread that we find between Paul and Peter and Jesus is that these false teachers are completely and totally ruled and subjected to some sort of lustful desire. Let me give you a few examples. In 2 Peter 2, 1-3, Peter warns, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing in upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their, notice this word, sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This word used for sensuality uh, by Peter is a word that means something like unbridled lust. Unbridled lust. And it's a word in, in, in the Bible that's not just confined to the sexual realm. This could be unbridled lust for, for power, unbridled lust for money, and yet it even could be unbridled lust for sex. Uh, again, look at the language that Jude uses. Jude, a, a letter all about false teachers. Look at the language he uses in Jude 18 to 19. He says this, They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly, notice this word, passions, passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Uh, this word here translated passions is simply uh, a word that means a desire for what is forbidden. A desire for what is forbidden. Ravenous wolves, frothing animals is an apt comparison. And really, the more we consider this language in the context of the whole sermon, the more jarring it actually is. Th think about this with me. All along, Jesus has been painting for us a vision of the whole person, of the whole person, whose external life and internal life are marked by the same lordship to Jesus. There is no duplicity in them. They are wholly committed to Jesus. This, Jesus says, while it looks and feels paradoxical at times and hard at times, this is true flourishing. Notice the language of our text today. Ravenous wolves internally who dress up as sheep externally. What we essentially have here is the photo negative of the flourishing person. This person is driven by their lusts. They have not only uh, lived into this duplicity, they've embraced duplicity. They, they knowingly act contrary to their internal desires. This, and our character today, this false prophet, is the height of hypocrisy. The, 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 the height of what could be defined as brokenness. And ultimately, Jesus says, this false prophet will be exposed and seen in their works. Point number three, the fruit of a false prophet. Look at the main body of the text with me. Jesus continues to say this. You will recognize them, talking about false prophets, by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Continuing in the wisdom tradition, indeed, that we find the whole sermon in, Jesus uses an example from the natural world to explain what is essentially a supernatural phenomenon. And we get it. It makes sense to us. What's internal will eventually be manifested externally. Who someone is, sooner or later, will be shown in the things they do. Mango trees produce mangoes. Apple trees produce apples. So it is with our hearts and our actions. And it seems, it seems at first read, simple enough. But if we step back and consider the fullness of what I've been saying so far, I find that we actually encounter a bit of a problem. Or if not a problem, at least an important question. See, so far, we've seen that a false prophet, driven by their earthly passions, deceitfully positioned themselves between God and his people. And, and, and you know this, they don't have wolf tattooed on their forehead. They don't have false prophet tattooed on their forehead. Instead, they present as sheep. They present as Christians. Often they present as true followers, capital T, true followers of Jesus. Further, many scholars agree, and I think they're right, that Jesus has, at least in part, these false prophets in mind when he continues to say next week, and we'll look at this in more depth next week, but when he continues to say in verse 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, and, and I think we can think of the false prophets here, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, maybe you on your own have stumbled across the problem have stumbled across the million-dollar question. And if you haven't, we can summarize it like this. If false prophets profess to be Christians, Lord, Lord, they cry, and they use spiritual gifts, cast out demons, even do miracles, how is it even remotely true that these ravenous wolves will be exposed by their fruit? Because frankly, their fruit looks pretty good. Their fruit looks pretty amazing. In fact, I've done no miracles this week. I've cast out no demons th th this week. Interesting. I, I think this supposed problem or this question can be answered in, in two different ways. And the first way is this. And this is so important to keep in mind with the whole Sermon on the Mount. Indeed, as you're reading all of biblical literature, Jesus has the long game in mind. Jesus has the long game in mind. Look at verse 19 and 20 again with me. There Jesus says this. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is saying that there is a test that regardless, regardless of whether or not we discerned the ravenous wolf in our lifetime, 
in our church? There's a test that the ravenous wolf cannot cheat, cannot beat. A test that no disguise, no matter how good it is, can fool. Jesus' own eventual judgment of all people, especially teachers at the end of the age. Then and there, all masks will be pulled back, and Jesus will see, if we can say it this way, if deep down that teacher has sheep guts or wolf guts. That's the first thing. Jesus is playing the long game. We too should consider the long game. And the second thing is this, and here's where I want us to end today. The second way we can answer this apparent problem has a lot to do with what we think the fruit in our passage to be today. Picture with me this. Picture with me a pastor who is extremely uh, charismatic. They are extremely talented. They're extremely gifted. And, And it just seems that God uses this pastor in ways that he does not use other pastors. In other words, they, this pastor, prophesy in his name, cast out demons in his name, and do many mighty works in his name. This pastor is so charismatic, in fact, that the small things of their life are often overlooked. This pastor speaks of his wife and his kids as if they're a burden, a hurdle to doing more glorious, effective ministry, of course, for the Lord. This pastor's temper flares up when he's challenged. He's often defensive. If you looked at the bank account of this pastor, you would find compulsive, out-of-control spending. If the Sermon on the Mount has taught us anything, the fruit that you, the Church of Jesus, should be assessing your leaders by is not the big, flashy fruit that shows up on Sunday morning, but the small, everyday fruit from Monday to Saturday. True prophets, sheep, are proven to be sheep, not in big, flashy, extravagant ways, but in small, everyday, whole-person ways. The problem, if I can speak frankly here, with the North American church, and of course that's a broad term, but you know what I'm saying, the problem with the North American, specifically evangelical church, cuts in two different directions. The first thing is this. For one, We've asked our leaders for big and flashy things. Thinking the church to be just another place of consumption, another place where I go and get my religious goods and services, we take our consumer mindset that is so deeply ingrained in our thinking and use it as a grid uh, to choose our next place of worship, to compare churches one to the other. Is the pastor funny? Check. Does their kid ministry have live animals every other week? Check. Uh, Their youth ministry has their own skate park? Check, 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 check. Let's go there. And when the market demand is for flashier and bigger, 
it is no wonder that church leaders often respond to meet that demand with flashier and bigger. And I want to tell you something that comes at the cost of something. That, that, that doesn't come at no cost at all. Often, that cost is the interior life of the pastor. The interior life of the leader. Of course, this is not all the market's fault. It's also my fault. I want the glory. I want the praise. I want, in my deepest being, the book deal. I want this YouTube video to get thousands of views, indeed go viral. I want the flashy. And so congregant and pastor work hand in hand in neglecting what truly matters. We are equally complicit. The congregant with the demand and me more than happy to comply. C can I ask something of you, Christ City? This is a strange text, and so this might be a strange ask. But can I ask something of you, Christ City? Can you hold me to more? Can you hold me to more? Lord willing, one day we will establish local neighborhood elders here. And on that day, can you commit to holding them to more? When we only hold superficial, consumeristic standards for our pastors, we are essentially saying we are okay with being pastored by wolves as long as they give us what we want. As long as they don't ruffle too many feathers. Can you, Christ City, commit to looking past the smokescreen of my gifts and talents, of my big flashy things? Can you commit to looking past the smokescreen of Heath's gifts and talents, of Joel's gifts and talents? C can you commit to ensuring that your leaders are pursuing whole person, in small ways, devotion to Jesus? We have forged this sacred unspoken pact as a church in North America. You and I, pastor and congregant, and it goes something like this. You don't look underneath my sheepish exterior, and I won't look underneath yours. I'll provide some sort of religious reassurance for you, and you give me the affirmation I so desperately need in return. Tell me how good my sermons are. And no one, at the end of the day, has to know who we are. No one has to look underneath our sheepish exteriors. Friends, let me be so frank. I'm done with that. And you should be done with that. Because I think Jesus is done with that. Ask more of me. Because I'm going to ask more of you. Ask deeper from me. Because I am going to ask deeper from you. And we will together, in love and full of grace, ask this of each other because we believe that the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that there is no other way to live. Friends, Jesus has before us in this sermon a beautiful, flourishing life. Is it easy? No. Is it simple? No. Is it challenging? Yes. 
But the simple message of the Sermon on the Mount is that there is one way, one narrow, cramped path to walk, and this is it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you know, you know the duplicity in my own heart. And you know the duplicity in the heart of those who are watching. Father, we want to be among those, and I want to be among those who at the end of the age are found to be faithful with whatever you've given me and whatever you've given us. Father, I pray that we would be people in love, so much love, and in grace, so much grace. Ask for deeper. Ask for more. People who are not satisfied with our sheepish exterior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.